Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my psychoanalytically challenged friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about those critical distributions that often go undiscussed, non-central distributions, including their relation to the more familiar central distributions, their role in power and sample size determination, and how they are used in assessing data model fit. Along the way, we also mention back porch reading, latent classes of one, statistical concepts as personality characteristics, double doink, brilliant, cocktail party banter, reaching into your D-bag, mini-tab macros, sucking good practice out of your field, my most boring paper, before horses were invented, and throwing down your guitar. We hope you enjoy today's episode. I am very excited because I have a new back porch reading. Wait, did Winston Churchill write something new? (laughs) I am taking a break from Winston. Okay. These books are a thousand pages long and you have to take everything in moderation. Mm -hmm. I have selected a shorter book (laughs) that was shared with me with a friend of mine. Uh All right, so first we have to get in the Wayback Machine. I've been an assistant professor for about 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. I was in the Department of Psychology at Duke. There was a very bright graduate student there named Cindy Lustig. Oh, yeah. And she is now a heavy hitter professor at the University of Michigan. Oh, they grow up so fast. I got an email from her recently. One of her family members somehow reviews books Mm -hmm. and got a book sent to her titled, may I read it? Please. Top Gun The Legacy. (laughs) The Complete History of Top Gun and Its Impact on Tactical Aviation. It is, let me look to the back, 688 pages long. Here, I'll hold it up. You can see it. (laughs) Compared to Churchill, that's like a pamphlet. This is shorter (laughs) than the last one. But evidently, Cindy's family member said, who the hell would ever read this book? And she replied, I think I know a guy. Cindy packaged this up and mailed it to me. Mm -hmm. Now I have a briefer book to read in between my Churchill books of the legacy of the Top Gun program. That is very nice. That would have come in handy during our episode with Craig Enders, actually. Oh, I forgot. Yeah. Right. You were Wiener Boy, weren't you? Easy there, not Sean. Easy there. (laughs) (laughs) And what was Craig? I forgot. The Fly? The Fly. As books go, you are nothing if not reliable, right? You're this little latent class of one just sitting out there, and and Cindy knows it, I know it, all the people out there know it. I'm sorry, I'm a latent class of one? That sounds nicer than outlier, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So instead of an aberrant observation, I'm a latent class of one? That's right, I thought deviant might be too harsh. I'm liking this. Hello? My name's Patrick Curran. I'm a latent class of one. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. Nobody could clap, right? No. (laughs) There are 18 or 20 of us, but we're all in different rooms in the conference center. Okay, but I like this more broadly. 
I think we should make a move to start using statistical terms more in day-to-day life Mm -hmm. to explain people and capture people in our social network. Okay. 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 So, all right, right, folks, this is, we're totally making this up as we go along. All I wanted to do was just a shout out to Cindy and thank you for giving me like two weeks of reading on the back deck and the interminable eye rolls from my teenagers. (laughs) Now that that's out of the way, Uh I'm going to give you... A statistical concept. Okay. You're going to have to give me a very brief statistical definition of it uh-huh. and then apply it to someone in your social network. <laughs> well, I mean, okay. not an individual. You don't <laughs> have to do a call out. <laughs> okay. Missing not at random. Oh. <laughs> All right. Statistically, it means that that datum is missing specifically because of the value it would have been had it been present. Um, missing not at random. Uh, I'm not inside your head. Thank God I'm not inside your head. But let, let me just see if, if this is close. So when the agenda for a faculty meeting is sent out ahead of time and people read it, those people are missing not at random from the faculty meeting. <laughs> Does that work? It does. It's not a personality characteristic. Oh. But okay. All right. Remember, I've taken like zero psychology classes. You mean psychology? Yes, psychology. All right. So wait, do I get to give you one then? We put a lot of effort in structuring this. So yes, if you look at the notes that we've exchanged over the last two weeks, (laughs) you'll see now Greg (laughs) responds to Patrick (laughs) with a witty comment. That reflects well on him. And chuckles heartily, but not too heartily. I don't think you read the emails I send you. Emails? <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, let's go Bayesian. You're welcome, Roy. Uh, flat <laughs> <laughs> prior. Flat prior. It is entering an analysis with a statement of no prior information about what you're studying or estimating. That it is uninformative. You have no prior information. Okay. Now applied to a person, the individual is so lacking in principles and beliefs that they are completely governed by whatever is happening right in front of them. I'm looking at you, and I feel like you have someone in mind when you're saying this. (laughs) Do you? (laughs) There's a name behind those eyes. Okay, I'm going to go a little psychoanalytic on you. Oh. Regression. Okay. The first one, regression, we talk about it statistically when we are building a predictive model of some outcome variable where we're using an X or a set of Xs to predict that particular Y. That is regression. Psychoanalytically. Or for you, psychoanalytically. Psychoanalytically. All right. So while you were talking, (laughs) I pulled up the comprehensive dictionary of psychoanalysis. (laughs) This is not an exaggeration. Whenever I'm talking, Greg's doing email. He's looking stuff up on Google. He's watching TikTok videos of tutorials on the shuffle dance. Hang on. I'm finishing my taxes. (laughs) Did you say something? No, I'm just scrolling through. I'm not sure how helpful this is. I'm only on the A's. I'm just past aggression into anal retentive. How about you and I, when we are in the presence of each other, we have this habit of regressing back to being 13 years old. What do you think? From being 14? From from 14. It's not a huge leap for us. I admit, it's not a... Anyone who knows us, it's like, yeah, what is that, six or eight months? Uh... 
Non-centrality. So non-centrality, the central distribution, like a T or a Z or an F or a chi-square, is derived under the null hypothesis. A non-central distribution is that same distribution, but it is shifted horizontally because it's often derived under the alternative hypothesis in which there is some misfit relative to the null. And so the non-centrality parameters, the difference between the central and the non-central, that is often used to reflect misfit. I barely understood what you said. And again, that's mainly because I was doing the Wordle. <laughs> so maybe we'll have to unpack that. So give me the psychological. Okay, the psychological. So if you were to say... Someone has a non-centrality parameter greater than zero. Uh I think that's a new thing we need to move into the lexicon. Sure. I was talking to Dan the other day about some political stuff, and dude, he has a non-centrality parameter (laughs) greater than zero. I like it because it could mean anything you want it to mean, right? (laughs) But isn't that statistics? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, everybody. (laughs) We'll be here all week. Yeah. (laughs) That's outstanding. So that's the task for listeners is at some point during the week, you need to work into your conversation a statistical concept, but in reference to a personality (laughs) or behavioral correlate. If you have a colleague who in any meeting just is absolutely obsessed with whatever the conversation is going on and nothing else, well, Sally has a flat prior. Nice. If somebody is making an argument and they're just simply wrong, they have a very large non-centrality parameter. (laughs) And if we all do this together, it will become normalized. Okay, maybe I didn't understand the assignment. (laughs) I'm sorry. Regularized? Dude, I don't know. Damn it. I'm trying. Okay, but here's the interesting thing. I think the most misunderstood distributions in stats are non-central distributions. When you say misunderstood, we never freaking talk about them. So, (laughs) Oh my God, I love our job. Uh I just love it because none of us ever teach this. And then we are utterly and arrogantly dismissive because you don't know it. Is somehow you're just supposed to divine it from the ether that the numerator of the RMSEA is the sample estimate of the non-centrality parameter. Duh. What? (laughs) Yeah. All right. So you said a lot of really cool stuff when I threw non-centrality at you, and it might be good just to sort of take that slow because when we talk about distributions, we almost always mean when we say the F distribution or the T distribution, we almost always mean a very specific one of those. And when I say a very specific one, I don't mean with a specific number of degrees of freedom. I mean this thing that you're alluding to called a central distribution, but that's only one of yet an infinite number of these other kinds of distributions. So where's a good place to start unpacking this? Well, let's again get back in the Wayback Machine Mm -hmm. and go to the very first distribution any of us were ever taught, and that's the standard normal, the Z. Mm -hmm. We were taught a variety of things about that, is that it has no degrees of freedom, there's only one, that there are an infinite number of normal distributions, each defined by its own mean and standard deviation, but because infinite seems like a lot, we talk about a standard normal, which is a mean of zero and a standard deviation of one. 
Why do we do that? Because we want to compute the integrals of the area under the curve to get probabilities. And if we just work from a standard normal, back in the day, we could literally just have a table so that we could look up those values. Well, what you're really doing is integrating under a normal distribution of a known mean and variance of 0 and 1. The word that nobody ever used is that's actually a central Z distribution. Mm -hmm. That is derived under the null hypothesis. How many of you have been made to repeat the probability that I would have observed a value of my test statistic of this magnitude or larger is this particular p-value if there is really no effect in the population. Well, what's implicit in that is we are deriving that z-distribution under the null hypothesis. And you were often taught, well, if you have a significant effect, your p is less than 0.5, it could have come from that distribution, but it probably came from another distribution. But nobody ever asks, what other distribution? And you say, oh, don't worry, your pretty little head. It just probably didn't come from this one. (laughs) Yeah, we learn everything there is to know about that distribution that is centered at zero, that Z distribution. The first hypothesis tests that we do, which are usually those tests about a single sample mean where the good Lord has chosen to give us the (laughs) population variance. We don't know the mean, so we're going to test that. But by God, we were given the variance. Thank you very much. And under the null hypothesis, that converts to a Z distribution, assuming normality, that is centered at zero. But like you said, when we get a p-value that's really, really small, we find ourselves in this position of saying, well, either the null hypothesis is true and we got a sample mean that is just randomly out toward the tail, which doesn't happen very often, or maybe our sample came from a different population. Well, where is that population? And the answer is, well, it isn't centered at zero. It is centered somewhere else. Maybe it is centered half a standard deviation higher or a full standard deviation higher. And I'm starting to say things that sound a lot like effect sizes. So we understand the concept of effect sizes. What we're really saying is that the true distribution is centered somewhere else. So we refer to those as non-central distributions. Patrick used the word shift earlier because it's literally just the normal Z-curve where it is shifted in some direction to represent whatever its truth is. And I don't know what its truth is, but at some point if I reject the null hypothesis, I think centered at zero is not its truth. There are two things that I find interesting in how you describe that. One is, I really like that image of that being shifted to the right. But remember, we derive the distribution under the null. Mm -hmm. Let's say we're doing just a simple test between two means. The difference between the mean is zero. That's the null hypothesis. And we're able to derive the sampling distribution under that statement. If we want a specific non-central distribution... We have to make an equally specific statement about what is the difference between the means. So I like what you said is, well, maybe it's a half a standard deviation difference. So we have two distributions if we're using a z-test. We have the sampling distribution derived under the null hypothesis, and we have the sampling distribution derived under the alternative hypothesis. And those two are exactly the same shape, but they're doinked over whatever your effect size is. (laughs) Oh my goodness. The Bears season's going to end on a double doink. The early literature actually uses that term. That was Gossett. Doink, was, doink, 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 Gossett. doink, doink, doink. He had been on his fourth Guinness at the time, uh-huh. so. Explain the bottle again. Well, I fill it with authentic Guinness draft. Brilliant! And then we drink it! Brilliant! 
What else are you working on? You got to cut him some slack. Well, we got to doink it a little bit to the right. right. Exactly. There you go. Mom, I didn't know you were here. <laughs> However, if we want to do a mind bender, rarely, if ever, do we work with Z distributions. We don't right. have an infinite sample size. Our friend Gossett on his fourth Guinness. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Not only doinked it over, but said, Arg. <laughs> The shape of the distribution depends on the degrees of freedom. Arg. <laughs> Again, if you go to some of his readings from the mid 1900s, uh, it's A R R R R R G H H H H. But it moves us to the T distribution. We're going to turn two knobs on complexity at the same time. One is, there's not just one distribution as there is in Z because it's asymptotic. We have a unique T distribution at each degrees of freedom. But as we doink that over, doink, doink, Mm -hmm. doink, 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 it actually becomes asymmetric. That will take a lot more Guinness. Brilliant! (laughs) To get your head around, I think. Because with the normal curve, the only thing that we're doing is in the numerator. The denominator stays constant. It is whatever measure of variability we have that's derived from the population. When we get to the T distribution, though, we got things going on in the numerator and things going on in the denominator. The things going on in the numerator really are just kind of shifting things. The null distribution is centered at a T of zero, but the T value itself has not just some mean information information in the numerator. It also has variance information in the denominator, where that variance information is not fixed. That variance information is dependent upon the sample. And there is a whole distribution that governs how variances fluctuate. When we shift the T distribution, we'll just say, for argument's sake, shift it over to the right, the T distribution that is non-central becomes asymmetric, which is really, really weird. But again, it has to do with what's going on in the denominator. But as Patrick said, just to say the non-central T distribution doesn't even make sense. Just like to say the T distribution doesn't make sense. The T distribution is a whole family of distributions. Now we have a whole family of non-central distributions for every possible degree of non-centrality that we can have. So it's not literally shifted like a Z distribution is. It is shifted and stretched a little bit. But we still talk about it being shifted sometimes. We use that casual language. The extent to which it's shifted, we will often refer to as its degree of non-centrality. As a public service announcement from Quantitude, we continually provide information for you to isolate yourself from (laughs) pro-social networks. What we're doing is giving you something at a cocktail party that is the equivalent of from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. What is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? African or European swallow? I don't know that. Well, you have to know these things when you're a king, you know. (laughs) When somebody says a T distribution, Mm -hmm. you can now say, well, do you mean central or non-central? I don't know that. (laughs) But it's actually really important to think about these things. For the majority of distributions, they're central and non-central pairings. The stuff that we do, the Z, T, F, and chi-square... Turns out there's even a non-central binomial, which is kind of cool, but in the kind of linear work we do, we tend not to encounter that. Mm -hmm. Anytime you think about a Z distribution, a T, an F in an ANOVA, a chi-square in an SEM, they're actually two versions 
of that that aren't just, oh, that's interesting. There's a little trivia for the day. I mean, these are insanely important because they are the sampling distributions that are derived under an alternative hypothesis. In fact, from the perspective of non-central distributions, the central distribution is just a special case where the non-centrality parameter is zero. So something you and I like to talk about, right? When someone has a model where they say, well, your model is just a special case of my model. (laughs) And then you go off to the rest of the sucky party. But yeah, that's the case when it comes to distributions too. If we take the whole family of non-central distributions, the central distribution is just a special case. And the non-central distribution just kind of shrugs its shoulders and says, well, (laughs) you're just a special case where my non-centrality parameter is zero. So the action really is in these non-central distributions. We're going to resist the siren song as we're lashed to the mast of Odysseus's ship and not delve into power deeply here. Mm -hmm. We may come back to that in a later episode and puzzle through it once we set up non-centrality. But when you talk about an effect size, and whether you learn this in class or you do this for a grant application, and you pick an effect size. So you go to Cohen and you pick a D value and it's 0.2 to 0.3, whatever it is that you're doing, you are actually talking about a non-central distribution under an alternative hypothesis. You are talking about to what extent is the distribution under the null shifted due to a misspecification of a given value. Now, I say misspecification. It's misspecification relative to the null. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we think about it as misspecification in an SEM. Sometimes we just think about it as an effect size, as a difference between two group means. So when we use that terminology, we mean the same thing. We already derived the distribution under the null. Now we need to derive the distribution under the alternative. And you say, oh, cool, I can do that. What alternative, right? Because there are an infinite number of these distributions. Mm -hmm. And you say, oh, for a D of 0.2. And you say, cool, I can do that. Here's your distribution under a D of 0.2. That's the non-central distribution. And that's the distribution we can use to compute power. And we've all seen these pictures, right? It was probably with normal curves. And there was a certain degree of overlap between them. And there was a part that was shaded that was referred to as type 1 error, and that was in the null distribution. Then there was a part in the alternative distribution that was shaded that was labeled as type 2 error. And then there was a part that was labeled as power. Well, that's all great. And we should remember that. Who decided where that alternative distribution goes, right? There's a different alternative distribution for each effect size. If you reached into your bag of Cohen's D's and pulled out a different value, that would be sitting somewhere else. Every time you reach into your D bag and pull... Nope. (laughs) Nope. Okay. Anyway, the idea is that power is tied to this effect size. That effect size literally converts to a non-centrality parameter. Sometimes it's an easy conversion. Sometimes it's a more complex conversion. It depends on whether we're talking about Zs or Ts or chi-squares or Fs. But the same idea holds irrespective of which distribution. The same ideas with regard to power hold. There's a shaded region for power, shaded region for type 2 error, and then in the null distribution, there's a shaded region for type 1 error. And remember, all of statistics, we're just playing Where's Waldo. So you do your study, you get your sample. Let's take a simple two-group independent tests of means. You take the difference, you standardize it, you get your t-statistic, and it is 2.12. So what is the probability that I would have observed this if it 
were generated by the central T under the null hypothesis. Well, that's our p-value, all right? But as Greg is saying, is that going into this with an effect size, is we can also calculate, well, what would the probability be that we would observe a value this larger, larger under the alternative, right? And so you get those shifted distributions and power is what is the probability I would detect an effect if an effect really existed. That power literally comes from the integration of the non-central distribution So, part one is we have a central distribution that's under the null, Mm -hmm. and we have a non-central distribution that's under the alternative. Now, remember, it's a specific alternative. Absolutely. We can't just say under the alternative they're not equal because they're an infinite number of distributions, and so we say they differ by two-tenths of a standard deviation. Great. I can do the integration. I can get the probabilities. All right, now they also hold for these other distributions. There's a non-central F. That gets trickier because you got stuff moving in the numerator and in the denominator. Yeah. You know what helps me get my head around it is the chi-square. And even more so than the T because of the weirdness with the T is, let's think a little bit about the chi-square. The chi-square is so ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. We have it in SEM. We have it in likelihood ratio tests. If you're doing a multi-level model and compare two nested models and you take the difference between negative two log likelihoods, that's distributed asymptotically as a, Mm -hmm. wait for it, central chi-square. We say, oh, the LR test statistic is distributed as a chi-square. No, it's not. It's distributed as a central chi-square under the null hypothesis, right? We really have to start getting specific with this language. So let's think a little bit about the chi-square distribution. It is a family of distributions like the F and the T and the binomial for that matter. As degrees of freedom go to infinity, the chi-square approaches the normal. Mm -hmm. So a chi-square is defined by just a single set of degrees of freedom. Degree of freedom one, there's a central chi-square. Degree of freedom of two, there's a central chi-square. And how we can think about it, and this is really cool, I think is imagine that we did a random draw from a 0-1 Z distribution. Mm -hmm. Square it and get a test statistic. That's our test statistic. Z squared, one draw. Mm -hmm. That actually defines a chi-square distribution with one degree of freedom. A central chi-square distribution. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're exactly right. That is a central chi-square distribution on one degree of freedom. All of us have seen this. It piles up at zero, the expected value. Okay, ready? Oh my gosh, you can lose all of your friends in a single party, all right? Greg, walk up to somebody and tell them the expected value of a central chi-square distribution. Hi, great party, huh? Mm Mm-hmm. My my name is Greg. Uh Uh-huh. I have a question for you. Uh, okay, what is it? Do you know what the expected value of a central chi-square distribution is? African or European? I I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) The expected value of a central chi-square distribution is equal to the degrees of freedom. And the variance is equal to two times the degrees of freedom. Oh, it's so beautiful. It is beautiful. So picture in your mind's eye, a long tail skewed distribution that's centered over one has a variance of two Mm -hmm. because it's two times the degrees of freedom. That is a central chi-square on one degree of freedom. All right, now do that thought experiment again. Do one draw of Z and square it. Mm -hmm. 
but add it to an independent second draw of a z squared. Yep. So z squared one and z squared two is our test statistic. That follows a central chi-square on two degrees of freedom. Then we have three degrees of freedom. We have four degrees of freedom, up to infinite degrees of freedom. This is our workhorse. And I'll tell you what, it makes sense to me in the following way. When we learn about the concept of a standard deviation in a normal curve, you know, we might define standard deviation precisely or sort of loosey-goosey, but standard deviation in a normal curve tells us something about how far away scores get from the center on average. It's one of those funny averages, right? But if you had to say, I drew a score, how far do you think it might be from the middle? The standard deviation tells you what is a standard or typical deviation. And the standard deviation in a z distribution is 1. So if we square z scores and z scores typically deviate 1 unit from the middle, then in this chi-square distribution, the central chi-square distribution with one degree of freedom, the typical z deviating one unit from the middle now deviates one squared unit in chi-square units. So the expectation is one. And if we do this for a second score, a third score, a fourth score, each time we're adding in one more expected unit of deviation in the z, which becomes one squared unit. And so the expectation of these central chi-square distributions with whatever number of degrees of freedom we have is just a whole bunch of ones summed up from these independent observations. Brilliant! Now let's have a little fun with it. So that is the central chi-square mm -hmm. defined by a single degree of freedom, one or two or three or four. The mean is the degrees of freedom. The variance is two times the degrees of freedom. Now we're going to do that thought experiment again. We're going to go back and we're going to pull a single z from a normal distribution. What I did before had a mean of zero and a standard deviation of one. Mm -hmm. Now do a thought experiment where we have a mean that is not zero. Let's just call it mu. Let's keep standard deviation one. Now we square it. That test statistic no longer follows a central chi-square distribution. That actually follows a non-central chi-square. That has a mean that is now the degrees of freedom plus what we're going to call the non-centrality parameter. This is often referred to as lambda. Because we don't have enough uses for the symbol we lambda. We don't have enough lambdas and just... <laughs> We felt like you were starting to understand stuff too much, so we figured right. we'd just start renaming things. What is lambda? Well, the deviate was z squared, mm -hmm. but to that we add mu squared. So that's our test statistic, is z squared plus mu squared. Well, that mu squared is, for one degree of freedom, the non-centrality parameter. Lambda is literally equal to mu squared, where mu is the mean of the z distribution from which we drew our deviate. So we now have it centered at degrees of freedom plus lambda. Yeah. So it's shifted to the right by lambda, except the variance is now two times the degrees of freedom plus four times lambda. So it's not just shifting it like that, you know, Z where we just slide it back and forth. Yeah. It's shaped differently. You said something earlier that I just love, and I want to underscore that and talk about it in the context of what you're doing right now with the chi-square distribution. You used the term misspecification early on. And if the truth is that the alternative hypothesis puts the mean, let's just say for simplicity, at one instead of zero then a model that says z is centered at zero is misspecified because the actual correct model would be that the normal distribution would be centered around one rather than zero. 
And so we can think about the degree of that misspecification, the quantification of that, as how big the gap is from the real center of the distribution, let's say at one, and the misspecified null hypothesized distribution that's centered at zero. Now we move into the chi-square distribution that Patrick is talking about, and there is, let's say, the true non-central distribution under the alternative hypothesis is centered somewhere. I don't know where it's centered, but it's centered somewhere. If that model is misspecified to assume that there's nothing going on, that the null hypothesis is true, the extent of that misspecification is captured by that non-centrality parameter. It gives us a sense of how bad things are, right? How far off things would be if we mistakenly misspecified the model and assumed that the null is true. So this non-centrality parameter, one way to think about it is how much the distribution gets shifted. I'm using that term loosely. How much the distribution gets shifted from central to non-central. But the other way to think about it, which I think is really useful, is to think about it as how much misspecification is induced if you go from the truth to some misspecified model that assumes that there's nothing going on that you're assessing. So I love the idea of the non-centrality parameter as being an index of the potential degree of misspecification that you have in a model. And it turns out that extending what Greg just talked about, we can get a sample estimate of the non-centrality parameter based on our model and our data. So I have a sample. I fit a structural equation model to it. And even if we talk about SEM stuff, as this generalizes across everything that we do. Yeah. So I have an SEM. I impose restrictions on the parameter space to keep Popper's corpse happy. I make an a priori statement about the structure of the model that I believe. I fit it to the data and I obtain my chi-square test. All right, let's be a little bit more specific in terms. All right, first you don't obtain a chi-square. You obtain a test statistic that we assume to follow a chi-square distribution. But we don't assume it to follow a chi-square distribution. We assume it to follow a central chi-square distribution under the null hypothesis. All right, so you go to your output in whatever your favorite program is, and you get a chi-square of 22. All right, again, that's not a chi-square. Right. That is the value of a test statistic that under assumptions we believe to follow a particular distribution. All right, I know we're nibbling around in specificity, but these are really important. Yep. You get a test statistic that we assume to follow a central chi-square under the null hypothesis. And we look at the significance of that. Whether that be a good or a bad thing, we can argue about that on a later day. But let's just pretend that if it's less than 0.5, we say it's significant. If it's greater than 0.5, and so on. All right, now here's the fun part. The expected value of a central chi-square is its degrees of freedom. All right, so if you have 10 degrees of freedom, the mean of that distribution is 10. The expected value of a non-central chi-square, which is remember the sampling distribution of the test statistic under a specific alternative, that expected value is the degrees of freedom plus lambda. Oh, well, if you got the chi-square with degrees of freedom, degrees of freedom plus lambda, and we want to isolate lambda, I'd be awfully tempted to take my test statistic and subtract the degrees of freedom. So your chi-square minus your degrees of freedom, it turns out that's a sample estimate of the non-centrality parameter. 
Yeah. Because your sample exists under the alternative conditions. Whatever truth is, your sample came from truth. Your sample didn't come from the <laughs> didn't come from the null distribution, unless the truth is the null distribution. So your sample's chi square should come from a distribution that is centered somewhere else. And the expectation is it's degrees of freedom only under the null hypothesis. So how much higher than the degrees of freedom are you observing your chi-square to be? That difference right there, as Patrick said, is a guess about what distribution our sample really came from and how non-central it is. Estimate your model, you get a test statistic of 22 with 10 degrees of freedom. Your sample estimate of the non-centrality parameter is 22 minus 10 is 12. Done. <laughs> that is your estimate of lambda hat. Okay, even I can do the math on that one. You wrote a SAS macro to do that, I bet. Actually, it was in Minitab. But... Okay, so now I've got lambda hat for my model and my sample, and it equals 12. Tell me what I do with it. Well, you know, we mentioned earlier that that is some reflection of the degree of misspecification associated with a model. And we said that back in the Z distribution. We said that back when we were just starting into the chi-square distribution. So I know that your model would fit perfectly with your sample if you had a completely saturated model. If you had, for example, in a measured variable path model, all variables connected to everything else. Once you aren't imposing any constraints, you get down to zero degrees of freedom. You get down to a zero chi-square, and that's going to fit perfectly. So what you have is the potential extent to which you might have misspecified your model by squeezing on your model by imposing constraints, by keeping Popper's corpse happy. So we could use that as a way to gauge something about how much badness of fit is in the system. Because in fact, that non-centrality parameter estimate, your lambda hat, is going to reflect the potential badness of fit that you have. So how do we convert that to something, right? I don't typically go up to someone and say, you know, my non-centrality parameter estimate was 12. And they go, ooh, 12. No, that never happens because they don't know what 12 means. So I need to put that on some kind of scale where people can internalize that, where they can communicate about it. And so a number of the fit indices that we have in structural equation modeling, for example, take that non-centrality parameter estimate and try to convert it to something that people can understand, that people can communicate about. One of those, and I know this is one that you're really, really familiar with because you taught it to James Steiger. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't sure he really understood. Yeah, right. So the root mean square error of approximation ties directly to this non-centrality parameter estimate. Do you want to connect those dots for us? Oh, man, I love the RMSEA. I don't love how it's used in practice. Mm -hmm. Everybody says, well, if it's below 05, your model fits. If it's above 05, it doesn't. Those are horrible. There's no empirical evidence for that. There's a massive simulation showing that that should not be used, but there it is. Why I like the RMSEA is it's a simple ratio. In the cockpit upstairs is chi-square minus degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm. That's it. The numerator is your sample estimate of the non-centrality parameter. The denominator is the degrees of freedom multiplied by n minus 1. Right. Well, why are we doing that? We're dividing by n minus 1 to undo sample size. Because just like the t statistic, your estimate of lambda hat, which is the non-centrality parameter, is massively influenced by sample size. Right. So we're going to divide by sample size, but we're also going to divide by the degrees of freedom. And this is what I love so much about the RMSEA is you are penalized for cowardice. 
if you only have a model with two degrees of freedom, this is a ratio of degree of misfit per degree of freedom, per restrictions you've imposed on the model. So imagine a given numerator that doesn't change. Let's ignore sample size. I mean, whatever it is, you're dividing that out. But imagine dividing by 2, dividing by 20, dividing by 40, Mm -hmm. where those are degrees of freedom. And remember, higher degrees of freedom are more restrictions you're imposing on the model, which makes you a more courageous person. (laughs) You're actually rewarded for having more degrees of freedom because smaller values of the RMSEA are associated with better model fit. All right, so that's what we're doing. Upstairs is the non-centrality parameter. Downstairs, we're taking out degrees of freedom and sample size. Mm -hmm. And then we slap a square root on it to put it back in the original metric of the likelihood. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. It's bounded between zero and positive infinity. There's a little dirty secret where you can get a negative in the numerator, but you can't take the square root of that, right? Because it's perfectly possible that you have a chi-square deviate that's less than your degrees of freedom. <laughs> you're just showing off when that happens. You're so. just showing off, <laughs> or you're an utter, utter coward, and you have like one degree of freedom. But if it's negative, it's automatically fixed to zero, And some work has been done on that of doesn't that mess with the sampling distribution a little bit? And it actually does because you're folding over those negative values. Mm -hmm. But it's not a big deal. That doesn't keep me up at night. But there are two huge advantages to this. One, it is unapologetically focused on fit in terms of non-centrality. Everything we've talked about up to this point is it is non-centrality per degree of freedom adjusting for sample size. The other is because of the brilliance of Jim Steiger. Brilliant! You can derive the sampling distribution of the RMSEA. What does that mean? We can get confidence intervals for it. Which, do you know how that's used in practice? Not at all. Not at all. (laughs) That's right. It's like it's on the label to sell it to you, but then people don't really use it because... It usually gives you such a fat confidence interval that you Well, don't care. and in fairness to people, confidence intervals kind of only make sense if you have some value in the interior that's important to you of the confidence interval. Mm-hmm. And there is no universal value that indicates a good or a not good fitting model. We'll put in the show notes, I was part of a massive simulation that showed nobody should ever use 05 again. And the impact on the field, I think, was negative. I think it encouraged people to use 05. I don't know how that happened. Yeah, you have an impact. I I did have an impact. (laughs) I sucked good research practices out of my discipline. Exactly. (laughs) So we've talked a lot about the root mean square error of approximation, the RMSEA, which I think is a very, very useful fit index. There are other fit indices that are based on non-centrality also, and they start to get into the area called relative fit indices or sometimes incremental fit indices, the idea of comparing something about your model to something about another model. And the something that gets compared in what we're talking about would be the degree of non-centrality. So if we take something called the RNI, yeah, relative non-centrality index. Yeah, exactly. I think it was McDonald. Yeah, that's right. 
So the idea of the relative non-centrality index, the RNI, is just what we're talking about right now. We take the chi-square minus degrees of freedom for our model, but then the question is <laughs> relative to what? And the answer is often, it doesn't have to be, but the answer is often that thing called a null model or an independence model, a model that says all of the observed variables that we have are independent of each other. They have no covariances among them, which means the only parameters associated with that model, that very, very, very harsh model, are the variances of those variables, as well as the means, which if you estimate as many means as you have variables, the mean structure becomes irrelevant because it doesn't have misspecification. So in the relative non-centrality index, we have the ratio of our model's non-centrality estimate to the non-centrality estimate associated with that independence or null model. And by God, we hope our model's non-centrality is way better, way smaller than what you would get for a model that's so draconian like the null or baseline model. And so if we take one minus that, it makes the index such that numbers that approach one make us feel really, really good, and numbers that approach zero make us feel horrible, because the numbers that approach zero mean that the non-centrality estimate associated with our model is about as bad as the non-centrality estimate associated with that baseline model. So that's the RNI. The CFI comparative fit index is essentially that, but it has some bounds slapped on it. There are certainly other indices that have chi-squares and degrees of freedom in them, but I would say the root mean square and then the relative non-centrality index or the comparative fit index are the ones that are really most anchored in this idea of non-centrality or non-centrality estimates. But the weird thing about these incremental or relative kinds of indices where you have the non-centrality estimate for your model relative to the non-centrality estimate for that null model is that, you know, the null model is so bad, it gives me pause. You clearly have not read the most boring paper I have ever written. <laughs> wow, that is saying something. That is saying something. <laughs> but you're exactly right. And you're invoking a thing that sometimes is called population drift. Mm -hmm. All right, now Greg and I came up through the system back before horses were invented. <laughs> And when we calculated these fit statistics, we literally fit the model that we hypothesized and we got a chi-square and degrees of freedom. And we manually fit the baseline independence model. Oh, yeah. Where we have the same variables. We just modified the code and everything got a variance and a mean, but no covariances with anything else. All right. So think about that as a bold statement for a whole bunch of cowards. That's the baseline model, and we would get a chi-square and a degree of freedom for the baseline model, and you can actually calculate all of the relative fit indices from those pieces of information. Mm -hmm. Chi-square DF for the hypothesized, chi-square DF for the baseline. All right, we have talked about your chi-square, right, which we also indicated is a T statistic that follows a chi-square distribution, but we're going to call it your chi-square. We believe that to follow a central chi-square distribution under the null hypothesis, and it follows a non-central chi-square under the alternative hypothesis, right? What could possibly go wrong? Mm -hmm. Remember Ken Boland's great line of, we've got to read the fine print. All right, here's the fine print on the non-central chi-square distribution. We have to assume that that non-central chi-square distribution is derived under an alternative that represents a misfit in the population that is approximately the same size as misfit arising from sampling variability. Ooh. All right, any questions on that? Is that pretty clear? <laughs> All right, anyone? 
Huh? Yeah, huh? <laughs> All right, what this means is the misspecification is not excessive. Oof. All right, again, super helpful, guys. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm. Right? You have to have a sufficiently large sample with a misspecification that's not excessive. So think about that. We want our test statistic to follow a known distribution under a given misspecification. That's our non-central chi-square so that we can get these estimates of the fit indices. But it's saying if your model is misspecified in a sufficient enough degree... Your test statistic doesn't even follow the non-central chi-square. All right, and what people do is roll their eyes and say, well, your model is never going to be so misspecified that that condition would come online and it wouldn't follow a non-central. I mean, when would you ever do that? You'd <laughs> literally have to manually go in and remove all the relations among all of your variables. You would be hard-pressed to come up with a worse model. <laughs> The baseline model that we use in all of our relative fit indices is horrifically misspecified. Yep. So the most boring paper I ever wrote, and I pulled down some people with me, Bolin and colleagues, and we'll put this in the show notes. We did a computer simulation to say, hey guys, I wonder what would happen if we got these T statistics under varying degrees of misspecification. So if we omit some regression parameters, if we omit some cross loadings, and then let's really swing for the fences and look at the baseline model. And the punchline of the paper was even for our most severely misspecified model that we would have some theoretical credence in, mm -hmm. that we had some omitted cross-loadings, we had an omitted direct effect. So you would want to know it was misspecified, but it was still reasonable. Our T-statistics followed the non-central distribution that we assumed it did. Mm -hmm. Baseline model, it threw down its guitar and stormed out the side <laughs> of the stage. And it was like, f*** you guys, I'm out of here. After one song. <laughs> Seriously, the baseline model was so misspecified that that T-statistic that you got in the associated non-centrality parameter did not follow the reference distribution. Wow. So we've got the central chi-square under the null hypothesis, where there's not a misspecification. We have the non-central chi-square under the alternative hypothesis, where there is a misspecification, but that misspecification can't be so severe that it leads that test statistic to follow some other unknown distribution. Mm. But what we can Included in that paper is it's close enough for government work, <laughs> like the RMSEA and things. Like, you'd have to have a pretty horrible substantive model where it didn't follow the non-central chi-squares, and it wasn't until the ridiculous baseline model that it threw down its guitar and stormed <laughs> off stage. So... Our walkaway point was all of the architecture that we use with the null and alternative and central and non-central and lambda works pretty well under most conditions that we encounter in practice. So if I can recap, we introduced the concept of non-central distributions and the non-centrality parameter. We talked a little bit about the role that that plays in power analysis. And then the role that it plays when we get to some of the modeling stuff that you and I inevitably gravitate toward, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter what we're talking about. You and I are going to bring it to structural equation models because we have latent tendencies. <laughs> Come on, nothing? 
<laughs> okay. That's... We'll insert one of my laughs from another episode. Ha, ha, ha. Ha, ha, ha. Okay. And then just the role that that non-centrality plays in the different fit indices that we use. But, you know, the thing that I think deserves a bit more attention, and we kind of danced around a little bit, is power analysis specifically in the context of some of these modeling things that you and I do, some of these structural equation modeling things. Because all of these ideas come together, whether it's power analysis for the assessment of the fit of a model as a whole, or power analysis for assessing the relations that are contained within a model where those relations correspond to specific hypotheses. All of the ideas that we have there kind of come together into something that people find themselves really needing to do. And that's something I'd really like to talk more about. So you're saying next time we record, we should just keep talking about this one. (laughs) What do you think? No, I totally agree because this is kind of a, hey guys, look what I found. We've walked you all the way through where you have lambda hat. That really is where we're left over. Your chi-square minus your degrees of freedom is lambda hat. Mm -hmm. That is your very own non-centrality parameter. Now let's screw around with it, (laughs) right? There's some really important work done by Satora and Saris, Mm -hmm. and they use non-centrality for power in SEM to detect specific misspecifications in the model. So you estimate your model with the parameters, you take out two parameters, and you use non-centrality to say, what is the probability that I would detect the omission of those two parameters? Bud McCallum, Michael Brown, Sugawara, they have an equally important paper where they say, well, you could do that for single parameters or pairs of parameters. What about the omnibus model? Mm -hmm. What about your overall ability to detect a misspecification somewhere within the confines of your model? We can use non-centrality to do that. And theirs is entirely based on non-centrality and the RMSEA. And so instead of having tests of exact fit, they recast it as tests of close fit and then compute probabilities in that way. So I think it'd be fascinating to say, okay, you have a new Lambda hat. It's now yours. <laughs> what can we do with it? Right. And I think we should talk about that on another day. I would like that. Mostly because I have to go to the bathroom. Okay. <laughs> so you're not able to do suppression anymore? I will for another 60 seconds. So it's really <laughs> up to you. Go. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Run. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go to listen to things that are really central to their existence. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message, find organized playlists and show notes, listen to past episodes, and other fun stuff. And finally, you can get cool Quantitude merch, like shirts, mugs, stickers, and spiral notebooks, just in time for the holidays, from Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast that definitely meets the assumption of strong ignorability. Today's episode has been sponsored by... Excuse me. Do you mind? Dr. Freud? No, no, not at all. Go ahead. You see, although the episode was explicitly about the construct of non-centrality, what is more interesting is what is implicit. What do you mean? If we dig deeper into the latent subconscious that guides Patrick in all that he does, you will see what I mean. Okay. 
To start, it is quite clear to me that he experiences tremendous disconnection, possibly even seeking it out. Notice his recommendation for others. Isolate yourself from pro-social networks. And consistent with his frequent lack of emotions, he even goes so far as to believe he is of non-human origin. I was part of a massive simulation. And this is evident in his attempt at human laughter. Ha ha ha! Ha ha ha! Wow. Yeah, and how does this make him view himself? Listen. Deviate. And also. A misfit in the population. But does he want to talk about this even privately, therapeutically, to help confront it? F*** you guys, I'm out of here. He becomes hostile. Exactly. Of course, all of this has one higher order, underlying latent construct that guides it all. Mom, I didn't know you were here. Oh, indeed she is. Yeah, indeed she is. This is most definitely not NPR.